Uh, my name is John. I think most, I know most of you. Um, I'm the campus minister for RUF at UVM. Uh, and one of my favorite things to do uh, as a campus minister is to get coffee or to get lunch with you and students like you uh, so that I can get to know you better. Uh, I love just learning who you are uh, and where you have come from uh, and what has brought you here uh, to UVM. I love learning what you're studying uh, and what you're interested in, what you like uh, and what you dislike, what you love to do uh, and what you want to do once you graduate from this place. I'm curious to know um, how you see the world and your place in it. In one-on-one conversations, as we dive deeper, uh, I'll ask you questions like, do you believe in God and why or why not? What do you think he is like? What do you think your relationship uh, with him uh, is like? I'll ask things like, do you think your life has any meaning? Or do you think that your choices matter? I don't ask uh, these kinds of questions of you because I'm trying to stump you. I ask these things because I want to understand you better, uh, to get to know you better so that I can love you better. I take you seriously as a person, uh, and I think how you answer these things is significant. Uh, As a friend and mentor uh, of mine likes to remind me, ideas have legs, and they take us places. And so I'm curious to know, where do you see yourself going? And as we spend time together and get to know uh, one another, I'm asking you questions And you're asking me questions too, right? Like you too want to know who I am and where I've come from and what I am doing here at your university. Uh, You want to know what I like and what I dislike. You'll ask me questions about my marriage and what it's like to be a dad to Willa. You'll also ask me questions about my faith and how I became a Christian. Like how is it, John, that you put your faith in Jesus? What was that process like? Do you have any doubts? Do you have any fears? One of the questions that I get asked a lot is, what does it mean to be a Christian? Or, what are the essentials of the Christian faith? Put another way, what do I need to believe to be or to become a Christian? Right? This question makes a whole lot of sense to me because I've asked it and I also understand where it's coming from. Right, think about it. There are Orthodox Christians, Catholic Christians, Protestant ones too, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Baptists, Anglicans, Methodists. Right, the list goes on and on and on. Right, there seems to be as many different types of Christians and types of Christianity as there are ice cream flavors at the Ben and Jerry's downtown. Right, but is there something that all of these flavors have in common? Is there a set of teachings or a set of beliefs that all Christians across time and across space, agree is foundational and fundamental uh, and of first importance? And the answer to that question is yes. Even in this like hyper-polarized world where it seems like nobody can agree on anything, Christians actually agree about a lot. And it's the Apostles' Creed. It's it's what you have there uh, in front of you. We're going to spend a semester really unpacking it line by line, and we're going to look at scriptures that really support it, right? It is, 
the, the Apostles' Creed really is rooted uh, in the Scriptures. It is the oldest, which, and to say the earliest, uh, Christian confession of faith. Old here is good, right? Uh, this is the, the stuff of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Right? This is what the early church called uh, the rule of faith. If you think about like, what was the early church, those people who walked with Jesus and watched him nailed to a cross and then saw him outside the empty tomb, like, if you ask what did these men and women think about and talk about over the dinner table and then go to church and hear preached on you know, every Sunday, like, what, was the, what was that conversation? It really was this. right? This is the, the stuff that they were discussing. This is the stuff that they were preaching on. The Apostles' Creed. Right? This, if you like, is Christianity 101. It's the basic. It's the, it's the essentials. What C.S. Lewis would call mere Christianity, or what you and I would call the goods, or the gist, or the meat and potatoes. Really the heart of the matter. It's the Apostles' Creed. Now see, throughout the ages, Christians have used the Apostles' Creed kind of like a map and compass. Something that you could reference again and again to make sure that theologically you're not lost and you're on track. A good hiking map will reduce a landscape to its most prominent features so that you can easily navigate your way through it. And the Apostles' Creed is like that. Um, It doesn't say everything that the Bible has to say. Instead, it reveals or highlights what is most important or prominent so that you can find your place in it and that you can navigate your way through it and you can get to where you need to go. It's also kind of like a compass, right? A compass showing you which is true north, giving direction. And this too, right, gives us, conf- uh, gives us direction when we are confused about something or find ourselves being led off course, right? The Apostles' Creed, in, in its way, is to say, hey, you, right, this is the way you need to go. This is true north. Before we look at the scripture, I just want you to imagine something with me, okay? I want you to imagine that you're a, a pilot and you're taking off from Burlington Airport and you're flying to Los Angeles. You get your plane off the ground, which is a modern miracle, right? Those things weigh a ton. You get this thing off the ground, you get to cruising altitude, and you steer the plane in the direction of LA. But as you set your course, you're off by one degree. Okay? One degree doesn't seem like a whole lot. There's 360 degrees. So one is just like this much, right? It's just a tick. But here's how this is going to play out. If you are off, when you set your course for L.A., if you are off by one degree, for every mile you travel, you miss your mark by 92 feet. And by the time you get to California, if you stay on that trajectory without any correction, you will have missed L.A. by 50 miles. 50 miles. That's no small thing. When we come to the scriptures and we want to think rightly about God, precision matters. It's important that we get this right. Because if one degree off means a 50-mile difference, imagine if you're off by two degrees or three degrees, or 15 right, degrees, you'd be way out in left field. You would not be in California. You might be in the ocean, floating on some debris. And maybe that's how some of you feel right now. 
Maybe you feel a little bit confused or lost or needing help right, in your spiritual journey. Maybe you feel way off course. You need some direction. Well, here's the deal, okay? The Apostles' Creed is going to help you. It's going to help you. Because it's a map and it's a compass that has literally been used by billions of Christians for thousands of years. And it has been proven, tried, tested, and true to help folks just like you to understand the scriptures, to navigate the complexities of life so that you get to the place where you need to be. And that place you need to be is in is home. It's home. It's a renewed and reconciled relationship with your God who loves you and who died to save you, right? And who wants you to put your faith and trust in Him. An, an invitation to faith and trust in Christ is how the Christian life begins. And if you look at your paper that has the Apostles' Creed on it, you'll see it's, it's how the Apostles' Creed begins. Okay, it begins with the words, I believe. It does not begin with the words, I know. And that's important. Because there's a big difference between knowing something and believing something. What you know matters... But what you do with that knowledge matters more. Almost everybody in this room knows that smoking kills you. But every day, people still light up. In fact, in the last year alone, over 258 billion cigarettes were sold in the United States alone. And that's not for a lack of knowledge. That's in spite of it. Okay? You can know that God is good and that he loves you and he has done something to save you in the person of Jesus and he's at work in your life even now and you can yawn. You can reject it. You can hate God for it. The devil does. Demons do. All that is to say is knowing the Apostles' Creed will not save you. Knowing it by heart will not save you. But believing it will. Being committed to it being committed to the God who it reveals, and finding yourself in the story that it tells, that will make a difference. It will save your life. What makes you a Christian then? And this is really like the question, right? Like, what do I need to believe in order to be or to become a Christian? What makes you a Christian is not that you know these things or know them by heart, but that you believe them. That you put your faith and trust And the God described here and put your faith and trust in the story that this creed tells. Faith matters. It comes first and foremost in the creed. And it comes first and foremost in the Christian life. So what I want to do in our remaining time is I want to look at a passage from Scripture that really highlights the importance of faith for you, Christian or not. right? Uh, And I want to look at how this is relevant to your life. So, if you have folded your paper, you can flip it, or you can just look at it like this, or you can throw your eyes up on the screen, and we're going to look at Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 10, okay? Ephesians 2 starts this way, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I'm going to pray for us. Father, thanks for bringing us together at the start of a new semester. Lord, I pray you would speak to us tonight. Uh, instruct us from your word. Um, and would you do this for the benefit of all here gathered and for the goodness and glory of your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all, tonight's passage really teaches us three things about faith. Uh, first, we are saved by faith and not by works. You could say it this way. We're saved by faith and we're not saved by our good deeds. Okay, two, we are saved by the strength of faith's object, the thing or the person we are putting our faith and trust in. We are not saved by the strength of our faith. Okay, we are saved by the strength of faith's object, not the strength of our faith. And thirdly, we are saved to do good works. We're not saved because we are doing good works, but we are saved in order that we would do them. Okay, so those are really the three points that really flow out of or emerge from this text. I'll start with number one. Okay, we are saved by faith and not because of our good works. Where am I getting this idea? Well, it's right there in your text, right? Verses eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. Right? It is the gift of God, not a result of works, not a result of your good deeds, so that no one may boast. There you have it. Okay? Without a doubt, the biggest misperception about Christianity is that God saves good people. Uh, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. That is, without a doubt, the biggest misunderstanding of what Christianity is or what the Bible teaches Lots of people think this. They think that if you're good, God loves you and he saves you. And they think that if you're bad, God hates you and sends you to hell. In popular imagination, God's kind of like Santa Claus, only he's more powerful and less jolly. He has a naughty list and he has a nice list. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, well, you're on the nice list and you get heaven. And if your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds... Well, you're on the naughty list and you get hell. This is a popular notion, and it's also wrong, completely wrong. This is not what the Bible says at all. And you know that because I just read to you from it where it says you are not saved because of your good deeds. You are not saved because of your works. You are saved by grace. You are saved 
by faith. Ephesians makes this very clear. God, God does not save good people. God saves dead people. God does not reward nice people. He rescues naughty people. Look at verse 1 with me. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among uh, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You hear what it says? It says spiritually you're dead. Right? Spiritually, you're misled. You're not following God. You're following, the, you're following the devil. You're following all those who say to, to go the other way. Right? The sons of disobedience. You're dead and you're misled. You know, and it's not just you. Right? It's, it's all of us. Right? Uh, this is like the rest of mankind. Okay, I, imagine, um, imagine Romeo and Juliet. Uh, having an argument amongst themselves whether or not Shakespeare exists. It's kind of an absurd sort of scene, right? Romeo and Juliet arguing, there's no such thing as Shakespeare. They exist because he exists. Right? If there's no Shakespeare, there is no such thing as Romeo and Juliet. Right? They really are the creation of his mind. And it's laughable for them to think that they and somehow uh, invented themselves. Yet we do this all the time. Right? We live as if there is no God, or maybe there is, but he's irrelevant. He has no right to tell us who we are or how we ought to live. We deny our maker, we push him to the side, and then we ignore his counsel and his commands. We're like the guy who buys this brand new expensive television and then ruins it on the same day because he doesn't want to follow the instructions. It's not just that we deny God and we break his commands and end up breaking the stuff that he's given us. We fail to even keep the laws that we make up and lord over others. We hate it when people talk smack about us behind our back and yet we do it. We talk badly about other people behind their backs. We hate it when maybe we see somebody throw uh, something that could be recycled in the trash can, yet we get lazy, and we do that too, right? The point is this. It's not just that we break God's laws. We break our own laws. We fail to even do the things that we say we ought to do. We've got issues, right? Not just 99 problems. We got 99 more. Right? We are not on the nice list. Left to ourselves, we are children of wrath, which is to say children who deserves God's righteous punishment. We do not deserve heaven. We don't. But God. But God. At the start of verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. This but God is arguably the best conjunction in the entire Bible and maybe all of human literature. 
It's the best. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You hear what it's saying? Because it's saying it loud and clear. Kind of like in all caps, with like 18 exclamation points and about a dozen emojis, right? God does not save good people. God does not save good people. God saves spiritually dead people. God saves people who break the law and who have broken his world and who break his heart. God saves people on the naughty list. God saves sinners who deserve hellfire, and he offers them heaven instead. You see, some 2,000 years ago, God the Father sent his Son to earth on a rescue mission. And in his life, Jesus lived the life that we were supposed to live. He loved God and his neighbor and this world to the max. And then, some 33 years later, he went to a cross where he took all the punishment that all of our sins deserve, and he took that to the max. And then he went into a tomb, and then he walked out. Because only sinful people go into a tomb and remain there. But he had no sin. Death had no, had no claim on him. And so he looks at his watch proverbially. It's like, it's time to go home. And so he opens up the tomb and he walks out and home is where he goes. And upon his re-arrival, he says, come with me. And he throws the doors of heaven wide open and says, come on in. Come on in. Because he gives you a golden ticket as a word. Right? This is better than Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Way, way better. He gives you a free ticket, free admission. Everything you need to do to get in here, I've done for you. And everything that is preventing you from entering in here, I've, I've taken that away. There is no barrier for you to step inside. So come in. It's free. The only thing that you need to do is reach out for it. Because he's holding the ticket right in front of you, right now. All you have to do is say, yeah, I need that. Thanks. And it's yours. That is what faith is. Faith is the empty hands. The empty hands that reaches out and receives the free gift that God is offering us. What is faith? When when Christians say, we are saved by faith, What we are saying is that you are saved when, with empty hands, you reach out and you receive the free gift that God is offering to you in Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace, which literally means by gift, through faith. Not because we are good. Because we weren't. And we aren't. We've got issues. 
If point number one is that we are saved by grace and by faith, point number two is this, that we are saved by the strength of faith's object and not by the strength of our faith. Let me say that again. We are saved by the strength of faith's object and not by the strength of our faith. And let me give you an illustration to help you understand what I'm saying. Person A, let's call him Frank, believes with all of his heart and mind that if he jumps out of a plane and he flaps his arms really, really, really hard, he's going to fly. He has strong faith. He believes this with the core of his being. He is utterly convinced that this will work. His faith is strong. But does having super strong faith save Frank? No, because he jumps out of that plane and he flaps his arms really, really hard. And even though he thinks that's going to save him, it doesn't. Hits the ground. There's another person on that plane. Let's call her Diane. Well, Diane does not believe that flapping her arms will save her. So she puts on a parachute. Now, she's not too sure about the parachute because let's be honest. After all, it's pretty much just like a tablecloth with some string attached to it and stuffed into a backpack doesn't seem like much. But she has enough faith to put it on. And she has enough faith to say, okay, when it's time, I'm going to pull this string, this ripcord. You could say she's skeptical. You could say that her faith is really, really weak. But does her faith save her? Well, yes and no. She's not saved because she, by the strength of her faith... She is saved because she put her faith in the right thing. It didn't matter whether she believed in the parachute a little or believed in it a lot. What matters is that she put her faith in the right thing. Whether her faith was big or small makes no difference when you pull the cord. Diane had weak faith. Frank didn't. Right? What matters is not the strength of your faith. What ultimately matters is what you're putting your faith in your trust in. What matters is the strength of the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith itself. So my question is, are you putting your faith in the right thing? Are you putting your faith and trust in something that can save you, that can sustain you, that can hold you in a fall? It does not matter if your faith is the size of a mountain or the size of a mustard seed. At the end of the day, what matters most is, is your faith invested in the right thing? A Christian, okay, a Christian is someone who has put their mountain-sized or their mustard-sized faith in the person and in the works of Christ, right, in God. They are not trusting their own good works to save them. They're not putting their trust in their, their own strength, right, to save nor are they putting their trust in the strength of their faith. They are putting their faith, big or small, in God. They are trusting Him to save. Him, right, the object of my faith. They are trusting His strength, trusting His power, trusting His promises, and trusting His faithfulness to those promises. And this brings me to our third and final point. One, we are saved by grace and by faith, not by our good works. Two, we are saved by the strength of faith's object, not the strength of our faith. 
And three, we are saved to do uh, good work. And that's the third point. I have in my pocket this thing. I wonder if you all know uh, what it is. Do you know what this is? Do you recognize this? Shout it out. What is it? Carabiner. Okay. This is a, uh, it's a piece of climbing equipment. Safety equipment, right, for, for when you go climbing. It is designed, this is designed to catch you, right, if and when you fall. Okay, on the side of this carabiner are some numbers, okay? This one says 23 and points this way, which means that when the rope is holding it like this, this thing can hold 23 kilonewtons of force. I don't expect you to do the math or to know what that means, but I'll tell you, this thing can withstand over 5,000 pounds of force. 5,000 pounds of force. You cannot break this thing. Right? This thing is nearly indestructible. I know it doesn't look like much, right? And maybe you're thinking, how can this little thing catch me or save me if I am falling? I certainly thought that the first time I saw it. I was doubtful about this thing. Um, I remember the first time I went rock climbing and the, the instructor explained to me all of the equipment and laid out all the gear and told me how it worked. See, I had all this information, I had all this knowledge, I had all these facts, but I had zero trust. I did not trust any of it. For a while there, I stood on the sidelines on this mat, and I watched people climb. I watched other people put their carabiners onto their harness and tie themselves into it, and I watched them climb, and I watched them fall. And I paid attention to this. It wasn't moving. It was remaining strong and steadfast. And then I watched them climb and fall some more. And this thing did not break. After a while, I finally said, okay, put it on. I'll take a shot at it. And granted, I was still a little bit skeptical. Granted, my faith was still really, really small. I didn't have a ton of faith in this thing. I had enough to put it on. And that's about it. And I started climbing. Well, somewhere uh, into the climb, I came to this crux, like this problem, and I couldn't make it any further. I didn't know how to proceed. And my fists started to hold tightly to the wall. I felt my heart start to race. I felt my hands start to sweat, which is not good when you're climbing. Right? My, my legs started to shake. And I looked down at this thing, and I had a crisis of faith. What am I doing up here? Like, I'm going to die. This thing is not going to save me. This thing is not going to catch me. But eventually I couldn't hold on any longer and I let go. But I did not hit the ground. Right? The carabiner held me in place. Right? It caught me. It saved me from falling. It held me up. Now why did it do that? Did it do that because I had strong faith? Well, I just told you I had hardly any. Right? I didn't trust this at all. Or I trusted it very, very little. Did it save me because I had strong faith? No. Did it save me because I was strong up there? No. I was weak. What saved me was not my strength, and what saved me was not the strength of my faith. What saved me was the strength of the thing that I had put my faith and trust in. This thing. The strength of the carabiner. It didn't matter if it was a little faith or a lot of faith. What mattered is that it, that it worked. What matters is that it worked. 
This brings, like I said, this brings me to my third point. The whole point of knowing the strength of a carabiner and the whole point of then putting it on is so that you can go out and adventure. Knowing this information about kilonewtons and all that stuff, it's only good and valuable to you if you then put it on and go out and explore some cool stuff. Nobody puts a carabiner on and then sits on their couch and eats nachos while they watch Netflix. That's a bad use of this. (laughs) Stupid, right? The reason why you put a carabiner on, the reason why you want to know that this is strong and it can support your weight and catch you if you fall is so that you can reach new heights. It's so that you can see things that you had never seen before. It's so that you can go to places that you could never reach before. It is so that you can go further up and further in. And faith in Jesus is like that too. When we put our faith in Jesus, when we attach ourselves to him, when we put him on, this frees us up to live lives that are courageous and gracious and humble and confident. With this faith on, you can forgive others that have really hurt you. Why? Because God has forgiven you in Jesus. With this faith on, you can love hard to love people. Why? Because God in Christ loves you. With this faith on, you can love fearlessly and you can live fearlessly. You don't have to fear death anymore. You don't have to fear rejection anymore. You don't have to fear failure anymore. Why? Because even though you are far worse than you think you are, you are more loved than you ever could imagine. You have a God who loves you so much that he is willing to leave heaven and come to earth and die so that you can live with him forever. You have a God who is strong enough to catch you when you fall. Saving faith It changes you, and it moves you, and it gets to work. So you can get to work and do cool stuff that you just couldn't before. Ephesians 2, 9 and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good work, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, we are, we are saved not because we're doing good. We were dead. We were saved in order that we could do good. Right? Good works is not the cause of our faith. It is the consequence of it. So put faith on. Try it on. Get going. Let's explore this creed together this semester. Right? Let's go some places that we didn't think we would go before as we try faith on. And let's learn how to walk in wisdom. Let's do that too in Bible study. Right? Let's get to work. Let's go further up. Let's go further in. I want to do this with you. I want to do it together. I want to do it in small groups. I want to do it in large groups. I want to do it one-on-one with you as we sit and we get to know each other over lunch and coffee. I'm totally committed to this, and I hope you are too.
right? Let's pray.